0: Paul Grimmin is going to be preaching to us this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I would invite you to open your Bible there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. But uh, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what what is to come Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the uh, what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks I'm speaking from the ESV, which will become significant at one point. You'll work it out. I'm going to pray. Father, help me to speak the truth and please shape our hearts. Amen. Well, in 1973, Bob Marley, having visited Haiti, penned these words Most people think great God will come from the sky, take away everything and make everybody feel high. But you know what life is worth. So, but if you know what life is worth, you would look for yours on earth. And now you see the light. You stand up for your right in the words of that song, uh, are a moment in history but that describes something very significant, I think, about the path and the shape of the world in which you and I live. You see, deeply at the heart of what Bob Marley was saying was all of these people keep telling you, you know, God's going to come back, he's going to make it everything all right, but that's never going to change anything. The only way you can actually see justice done in the world is by getting rid of any concept of the afterlife If you know what life is worth, you would look for yours on earth. That's the only thing that's going to motivate you to stand up for your rights and actually bring change in the world that you're a part of. And, brothers and sisters, that sentiment is actually part of and has become more deeply entrenched in the world in which you and I live. Um, you see it anywhere and everywhere. Joe Summer, who's a high-ranking member of the American Humanist Association and also uh, part of the organisation in America called Freedom From Religion, uh, writes in an article these words, religions may do more harm than good by telling people a life after death awaits them. In all probability, many terrorist attacks and other tragedies would not occur in the absence of that belief. And the article goes on to explain that a belief in life after death promotes terrorism... War, murder, suicide results in a waste of time, energy and resources and distracts attention from the world's problems. Now, you know it because you live in it, but we actually live in a world that's deeply antagonistic to any sense of there being anything beyond this world and then has framed a whole set of arguments in order to justify that position. And it seems to me that the awful reality of that is that as a church, at least in my experience of church life in the West, rather than clinging more tightly to the truth that there is a judgement and that there is heaven and hell and there is life and death, we've actually walked into the world of comfort. And I wonder whether, as much as it's all of those arguments, it's the simple fact that Sydney in mid-autumn is about as close to heaven as it gets. And yet brothers and sisters in the passage this morning as the apostle Paul speaks about what gives him the courage to keep proclaiming the gospel to a world who cannot hear it at the very heart of that message is what we saw in the very last verse of chapter 4 we look to the things that are we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient and the things that are unseen are eternal And Paul wants to say to you, in the midst of a world that doesn't want to hear, what's going to help you to keep proclaiming the gospel? What's helped me to keep living for Christ and proclaiming him in a place that doesn't want to know me? It's this very reality that this world is actually, it's very short and eternity is very long. And chapter 5 verses 1 to 10 are in effect an extended meditation on this idea that the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I want to invite you just for a moment to sit and drink in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10 and just meditate with me a little bit on what it looks like that it's actually the unseen things that are eternal. And, you know, in God's kindness, these words were particularly written for people living in Australia because Paul reckons that for you to understand the reality of eternity, you need to understand something about camping and you need to understand something about home and away. So it seems to me... Uh, that these words have been written particularly to encourage us. So come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, But that we will be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, at one level, it's not a complicated little section, although verse 3 is very odd. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Um, That's a strange little phrase, isn't it? Um, I don't know if you've ever been found naked by putting on more stuff, Um, but it seems to me that's very unusual. Uh, the problem is that there's a little textual variant in verse 3. There is one letter's difference between putting it on and putting it off. And so there's this whole argument in verse 3. Is he saying if indeed by putting it on we may be found naked or if indeed we may be if indeed by putting it off we might be found naked. And the problem is verse 2, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Well, that sounds like he's going to be talking about putting something on, right? And yet to say by putting it on, we may not be found naked, that seems to me to be a rather odd sentence and it's odd in Greek as well as in English. I think what Paul is saying is I think that the subject in verse 3 is still the tent. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting off this tent we may not be found naked. I'm longing for the thing and I'm going to put off this thing, and there's this slight anxiety, am I going to, as I put off this, actually find the reality of the future dwelling? But for Paul, I don't think it's a doubt, but it's just this kind of, almost you can't taste the thing that's coming, you can't see all the perfection and wonder and reality of it. And there's just this slight nervousness about being human. What is it going to be like to put off this thing that you have right now? Because this thing, says Paul, is a tent. This thing that you dwell in is a tent. And I don't know what your experience of tents are. Um, last December, I spent a week away camping with my family and some dear friends. And we had six and a half days of perfection. The weather was magic, Our life was ideal. We cooked outdoors, we went and swam in the surf. The sun was sparkling. We walked walked on the beach. The kids enjoyed themselves. It was a little moment of heaven. But six and a half days in, everything went pear-shaped very rapidly. In one afternoon, a friend that we were camping with was bitten by a funnel-web spider and sent to hospital. One of the biggest storms that I've ever seen in my life descended on the camping ground and we were all trying to hold the tent up while the rain poured onto the tent and it slowly collapsed under the weight of water and poles snapped. And a tent on the other side of the camping ground was struck by lightning and one of their poles was basically entirely disintegrated in that process. (laughs) Tents are great for a moment. (laughs) But I will tell you I have never been so thankful for packing up and going to a real dwelling the next day. There is something permanent and real. You know, even those semi-permanent dwellings that were built in Little Queen Street 100 years ago, they're still here. (laughs) There is something permanent about a dwelling that's not a tent. And Paul says here, basically, you and I live in a tent. This skin that you inhabit, this bag of bones, if I can put it like this, it's just a skin and it's a skin that contains things that decay and that leak and that get broken and that ooze and that weep and it's a body that is actually slowly but surely taking a step each day closer and closer to the grave. That is the kind of carcass that you inhabit. I don't know whether you ever stop and think about that very much but you're actually living in a body that is decaying and Paul says actually to live in that body is to cry out, to groan, to be burdened, to long for something better than the tent. And what Paul longs for is the dwelling that God will provide when one day he transforms your body into the likeness of the risen Jesus. And you will actually have a place that is fit to inhabit eternity. And do you love the image that he uses there? It's the image of death being swallowed up by life. It's kind of a... it's a great image, isn't it? I mean, think about every movie that you've ever seen where something gets swallowed up. It's terrifying, right? I mean, I don't know what you're thinking, like Jurassic Park. You're thinking kind of Star Wars as they descend into the Sarlacc. Um, sorry, that's a very trend nerdy reference. Um, LAUGHTER What happens when you get swallowed up by something? Well, most of the time it's terrifying, but the thing that gets swallowed up is completely consumed. And what Paul says is there's going to be a moment when death and mortality will be swallowed up by life. Life in all of its fullness and riches. Life in all of its eternal reality will swallow up your mortality and you will be given a dwelling that's fit for eternity. And for Paul, it's not a pipe dream. It's actually a fundamental part of reality because look at verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. The God who made the world, the God who is life, the God who cannot be touched by death, the God who tasted death and broke out of it in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, has given us of his Holy Spirit as the down payment, the promise that this bag of bones, this tent that you inhabit, is one day going to be swallowed up by life and made fit to inhabit eternity. Brothers and sisters, never give in to the folly that evangelical Christians have lost a doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Do you know how important your study of the Holy Spirit is and how important it is to teach people the truth about God's work in the Spirit? The Spirit is the Spirit who breathed life into that dust that God created at the beginning. And the Spirit is the Spirit who brings the life of the resurrected Christ into your life and who guarantees your transformation and dwelling on the last day. And the presence of the Spirit in you through faith in Christ is the down payment and guarantee that you will one day stand at home in a new body face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has set his Spirit in you as the promise that this is not your home. And so Paul moves on. So we are always of good courage, verse 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I think of all the verses this week, I actually found these ones the most arresting because I think it most (coughs) deeply challenged my own sense of where home is. It just bursts out of Paul in verse 8, do you notice? Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Would we rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord? Is there any sense in which we see actually the freedom from this world? Death as the gateway to something even better. There is going to be a moment when we're actually at home and this is not home. Uh, I think I am deeply rooted in this place and I keep falling short and looking for hope just around the corner rather than hope in the heavenly reality. Hope is a little holiday away. Hope is just a moment of going out to dinner. (laughs) Hope is a... Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't grant us all of those things and that we shouldn't give thanks for them. But I'm wondering if you are working at, as I think I need to work at, generating in myself a dissatisfaction in this world and a reminder that actually to be at home is to be with Jesus. See, according to Paul, where you live right now is the airport, it's the bus stop. Uh, do you ever go and sit on the bus stop out the front of college and think, gee, I'd like to be home here? I mean, have you ever thought that? <coughs> but Paul says, that's where you are at the moment. You're in the bus stop. You're in the airport terminal. You're actually on the way somewhere and the destination is heaven. And I wonder if our deepest problem is that we've been trained by our culture of distraction. That's what we actually have, I think, is a culture of distraction. What do you do as soon as you feel empty? You run to fill the void with something very short and sharp, a little burst of dopamine as you scroll the screen, a little burst of dopamine as you get the next fix of Netflix, a little burst of... like. When you go to sit on the bus and go somewhere, do you just sit and think, this is a reminder that I'm part of a world that's passing away and I want to be home with Jesus? What would it mean not to distract ourselves out of those moments of empty quiet and to stop and to fill our minds with the truth of imagining what it might actually be like to be home with the Lord? To see Jesus face to face? To be Freed from the rubbish of sin and to enter into the new heavens and the new earth with the words of Christ ringing in our ears, well done good and faithful servant, welcome home. Because you see in verse 9, Paul has been captured by Christ. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him is that our aim, to please Jesus? When you walk into church on Sunday, is it your aim to please Jesus? When you stand up to teach the Bible, is it your aim to please Jesus? When you chat over morning tea, will it be your aim to please Jesus? When you sit in the library, wrestling away with that essay is it your aim to please Jesus? When you sit in front of the computer feeling lonely and lost late at night, is it your aim to please Jesus? Paul has been captured by the love and mercy and grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and God has worked in him a heart that longs to please his Lord. And he delights in longing for heaven and he realises that this is just temporary accommodation. And he realises finally that at the end when we see Christ we will see him in judgment, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now we have a long history as evangelicals of characterising the judgement day as a moment of not fear for us because of the work of Jesus and it is a right and true and proper thing and our salvation is not dependent in any way, shape or form on what we do. And yet the New Testament persistently and consistently describes the judgement day as a moment when we will all appear before Christ in judgment. Verse 10, and this is actually Paul's motivation as we go on into the rest of chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul understands that even though judgment, in the sense of he could be cast into hell, has been taken away because of the death of Jesus, there is still something real for him about appearing before Christ that will reveal the reality of what he has done in the body. Now I take it that 1 Corinthians 3 lies at least in part in the background at this point in time and I just want to remind you of those words. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones or wood, hay or straw, each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. For Paul, knowing that the judgment is not the fear of condemnation, that does not exhaust his entire biblical picture of what is going to be the reality of judgment. And one of the things that Paul knows about the Judgment Day is that it will actually bring to light and reveal the kind of work that he has done, the kind of life that he has has lived, the place that he has chosen to pour his energy and his efforts. And for Paul, that is actually part of the ongoing motivation as he wants to please Jesus. I want to please my Lord. One day I'm going to stand before my Lord and it's going to be revealed what kind of life I have lived before him. (laughs) I don't think it's a source of terror, but I do think it's a source of sober reflection that drives him to actually think about what matters and why it matters and how he would spend his life. And what's fascinating for me is how many times in this passage Paul goes, So we are of good courage because we know we're away and not at home. We are of good courage because we're in a tent that's longing to be clothed with a reality. It's actually Paul's vision of heaven because he wants to see and know his Lord face to face knowing that judgment is coming that motivates him to love people with the gospel and to do ministry. And so, friends, my encouragement to you this morning as you go to morning tea, how will you help one another just this morning to remember that this is the bus stop? How will you help each other to remember that there's something more wonderful than you can imagine that's coming in the Lord Jesus and that pleasing Christ is our motivation? I'm going to pray that God will do that in us. Please pray with me. Now, Father, we come before you in part to repent and acknowledge that often our heart is here and not with you. Father, we're sorry for our folly and for our weakness and for the way that sometimes we get so caught up in the reality of this life. Lord, we ask please that in your kindness and grace you would cause our hearts to long for home. Lord, delight us with the truth about Christ. Please teach us to rejoice in pleasing him. Please help us to spur each other on to please him, knowing that we will stand before him at the judgment. Father, thankful for his gracious work and longing to have done the good works that he has prepared for us. Lord, stir our hearts and remind us of home for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.